All right, let's get into the Word of God today as we get this whole week of prayer started. I'm reading from Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7, and the title of my sermon this morning is two simple words, prayer power, prayer power. Isaiah 56 verse 7, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for your word today. As we look into it, Father God, we ask, Lord, that you would direct us. We ask that you will speak to us from your word, O God. Give us open hearts, open minds, and sensitive spirits that we may hear what the Lord says to the church today. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. As you enter the main doors of this church, not the sanctuary inner doors, but the outer doors, and you come into that main foyer out there, there are seven pillars that you will see when you come in. Seven pillars, and there are names on each of those pillars. Now, I know sometimes, you know, we've gotten so used to coming in and out of those doors that we walk right past those pillars out there and uh, pay very little or no attention to them at all because we, we, we are just used to them being there. But this, these pillars being set there where they are is not just for the, the beautiful architectural design that they add to the foyer out there. And it is beautiful. The message is that the first thing those entering the main doors of this church would see are these seven pillars upon which this house of God stands. You have the pillar of prayer, worship, fellowship, obedience, that's God's word, care, service, and outreach. And the first pillar, prayer, that's out there, the first to my right, your left, that first pillar of prayer was not placed in that position by happenstance, but by revelation from the word of God. The pastoral leadership at the time understood that in order for the other six pillars to be effective and productive, they must be undergirded by prayer. And so the first pillar upon which this house stands is prayer. And the other six pillars follow. And so that means then that the growth of the overall ministry life of evangelistic temple is dependent on its prayer life. The overall growth and the development of the overall ministry of evangelistic temple is dependent on its prayer life. Now, that involves individual prayer or personal prayer. That's me, you, as members of this church, having a prayer life of our own. And the power that's connected to that individual personal prayer life, we believe if we do pray and pray for our church, then the power of God and the power of prayer will be manifested within our church. Now, individual prayer can be very, very powerful. We read these words about the prophet Elijah in James chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, just like us. And he prayed, just like us, and he prayed. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, one man, just like us. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So that's individual prayer. But connected with this prayer pillar is also corporate prayer. In Acts chapter 12, one verse 5, it says, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Prayer by the church, prayer by the people in the church, corporately and collectively. 
And then verses 11 and 12 of the same chapter says, And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. That's corporate prayer. Where many, 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 not just two or three gathered in his name, not just wherever two or three are, many, many were gathered together praying. So corporate prayer and individual prayer, both are very important to the fulfillment of that first prayer pillar out there in that foyer on which this church stands. So extremely important. There are some churches, some here in the Bahamas, but most that I've heard this from are churches within the United States. But there are some churches who say that they specialize in certain areas of ministry. So when you come to this church, they say, here is what's going to be uh, at the forefront. Here is what's going to be uh, uh, what you experience the most when you come to this church. And some of these churches say that we are a church of praise and worship. So when you come to this church, what you are going to get more than anything else is good praise and worship. Then there are others that say we are, a, we are a church of teaching. We teach the word. We don't preach. We don't holler like Pastor Cash. Uh, we, 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 just, we just teach. And then there are those who say we are a church of preaching. So when you come to this church, you are going to hear loudness. You, even if there is no anointing, you are going to hear loudness. Because that's what we do. And you know, I, I, I still don't understand What's the difference, the real difference between teaching and preaching? Both are a declaration of God's word. And that's the main focus of that, declaring God's word. Whether it's done, as we say, teaching or whether it's done by preaching. But then there are other churches that say things like this. When you come to this church, you will see that we specialize in children's ministry. We specialize in small groups. Or we are a church that specializes in evangelism. Or our specialty is missions. Or when you come to this church, you are going to find out that we are a church that's greatly involved in social outreach. And so we engage in feeding people and clothing people and housing people and standing up for people's human rights. We are socially minded, a socially minded church. Then there are some churches that say we are a church that specializes in the arts. So when you come to this church, what you are going to see more than anything else and experience more than anything else is good music and drama and dance and video and sound and lighting. You're going to have that kind of a show because that's who we are and that's what we specialize in. But I want to tell you this morning, Evangelistic Temple, that God did not say that his house would be called by any of those things. Not a one, not a single one did God say his house would be called or characterized by. Now all of these things that I just mentioned, all of them are a part of what might happen in God's house, but they are not the name he placed on his house. Understand me now, all of those things might be a part of what we do, but none of those things did God say would characterize and be the name of his house? God said, my house, my house, not my house, not your house, his house. God said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And when God's house is a house of prayer, then what, what happens then? is that all of these other areas of ministry will flow out from that prayer foundation. When the house of God is a house of prayer, we will not have difficulty with these other areas of ministry, with their effectiveness or their productivity. But if the house of God is not a house of prayer, then we are going to have some difficulties. Because we will, for the most part, if we are not careful, be exercising the flesh and working in the flesh and ministering in the flesh without being undergirded by the power 
of prayer. And so we've got to be careful about those things. And so God said, let me read it again, the scripture that I read at the beginning, through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 56, when he was speaking about foreigners that would come to worship in Jerusalem, foreigners that would become proselytes of Judaism. God makes this statement, he says, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful, listen to me, make them joyful, listen to God I should say, make them joyful in my house of prayer. Not my house of praise and worship, not my house of all of these other things, but my house of prayer. And then he goes on and he says, their bread offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. God said, that's the name that I have placed on my house. A house of prayer. Now the Old Testament temple was known for a few other things as well. But the name of the house was the house of prayer. And God placed that name on the house. Some of the other things that happened in the Old Testament, the temple was a house of sacrifice and offerings. In 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 20 and 21, it says, Then King Hezekiah rose early, gathered the rulers of the city, and went up to the house of the Lord. And they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. Then he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So the house of the Lord was a place of sacrifice and offering. The house, the Old Testament temple, was also a house of praise and worship. So that happened in the house as well. Second Chronicles 29, verses 29 and 30. And when they had finished offering, the king and all who were present with him bowed and worshipped. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the leaders commanded the Levites to sing praise to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with gladness and they bowed their heads and worshipped. So the house was also a house of praise and worship. The house, the Old Testament temple, was also a house of the word, where the word of God resided, and where the word of God was declared, where the word of God was taught at that house of God. In 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verse 15, it says, Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. So when you went to the Old Testament temple, you would hear the word of God. Just like you are hearing it now. You would hear the word of God proclaimed. So the Old Testament house of God was a house of sacrifice and offering. It was a house of praise and worship. It was a house of the word of God. But God said, above all these things, my house will be known as a house of prayer. And so this is very important for us to understand because there are a lot of things that are happening in a lot of houses of God and a lot of houses of God are not houses of prayer. You see, in the Old Testament, there were three major feasts that the Jews celebrated at the temple in Jerusalem. There were about seven feasts in total that they celebrated, but there were three major ones, which Jews from within the land and those who were living in other countries tried their best to make their way to Jerusalem to be at the temple when these feasts were celebrated. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Feast of Pentecost. And each Jew tried their best to make sure they would make it to Jerusalem for at least those three feasts. And so the worshipers then traveled for miles. As I said, some of them from outside of the land of Israel would come to the city of Jerusalem to participate in these feasts. And instead of having to travel with the animals that they would have liked to sacrifice unto the Lord or the birds that they would offer to the Lord, the turtle doves and stuff like that, 
instead of having to travel with all of that, what happened was eventually there were merchants who set up stalls on the temple grounds, the temple compound and courts. And they set up these stalls and they provided these things for the worshipers. They brought them there, the animals, the birds, and the other items used in the sacrificial worship. They brought them there and then they sold them to the worshipers. So if the temple was set up here in Nassau and you lived in Inagua and you wanted to get to the house of God to participate in one of these feasts, instead of you having to take your sheep or your goat or your ox or your birds or whatever and put them on the boat and send them up to Nassau so that when you arrive in Nassau, your offerings and your sacrifices will be there for you. Instead of having to do that, the merchants came up with a good idea, at least in their minds, why not let's just set up a business here in the temple courts and sell these items to the worshipers. That way they wouldn't have to be concerned about anything else except getting to Jerusalem to participate in one of these feasts. And so that is exactly what was done. And by the time Jesus began his earthly ministry, the activities around the temple during these feasts had become corrupted. Extremely corrupted. So at every celebration of every feast, and these were major feasts, at each of those, you had a lot of corruption going on. At the same time, the feast that was set aside to honor and glorify God, glorify God was happening. So you had, you had the, the glory of God on one side, and you had the corruption of men on the other side. Both of them meshing together at the celebration of these feasts. And so the temple then became a place of merchandising, a place of stealing, and the place of the abuse of the poor. These merchants sold these items at exorbitant prices. And they knew that because these worshippers were coming from places that were far away. That they had no choice but to purchase the items if they wanted to offer a sacrifice or make an offering at the feast. And so whatever the price was, they would have to pay it. And so there was a lot of extortion going on and a lot of overpricing. Like Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. The same thing still happens today. But this was in a spiritual context. This was in a worship context that this type of thing was going on. And then if you came from another country outside of the land of Israel, you had your own currency. So when you got to Israel or you got to Jerusalem and you wanted to go and purchase one of these animals to offer as a sacrifice to the Lord, you had to have a money exchange. And so the money changers were there to change your currency into the local currency in order for you to be able to purchase the items that you needed. And of course, you had crooked money changers who operated right there on the temple ground. So they were not honest in their dealings. They were not honest in the currency exchange. And so it was a, 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 an atmosphere of absolute corruption going on. But it was supposed to be a spiritual experience at a house that was known and called the house of prayer. Think about the contradiction in that. A house of prayer, but at the same time, all around that house is nothing but the corruption of men. And so by the time Jesus started his earthly ministry, this is what was happening on the temple grounds. And so when Jesus came along and Jesus saw this, he had a problem with it. I'm sure he must have seen it at other times when he came to the temple uh, to worship. But when he started his ministry was when he decided something's got to be done about this. Something has to be corrected. This is not right and this is not pleasing to God. So one day he goes to the temple at the feast of Passover. A huge feast celebrated by the Jews. John chapter 2 verses 13 through 16 it reads. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. 
And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. The temple grounds, which was set aside and sanctified as a, as a place of worship, had now become a place of business. An abomination in the sight of God. And Jesus, the Bible says, when he saw this, verse 15, he made a whip of cords. He handmade a whip. And the Bible says, he drove them all out of the temple. Now, the wording says, he drove them all out of the temple. But he drove them out of the temple by whipping them out of the temple. Imagine in your sanctified mind, lowly Jesus, meek and mild, with a whip in his hand. And he's whipping the, the money changers. He's whipping the merchants. He's whipping the corruption and beating it out of the temple grounds and beating it off of that holy site because the house that was built there, the house that was centered there, was supposed to be a house of prayer. So Jesus, the Bible says, he drove them out all out of the temple with the sheep, carry your sheep, with the oxen. And then he poured out the changers' money and overturned their tables. Think about it in your mind. This is what's happening on this day in the celebration of the Feast of Passover. You are celebrating the time when God delivered the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt, freed them, took them across the Red Sea, took them into the promised land, established them there. King Solomon builds a house for his name and, and, and the people are gathered there to celebrate this feast, to celebrate this great event in the life of the nation and it has become a time of corruption. And Jesus says, no sir. It's not going to happen. It's not going to continue. So he whips them all out and drives them off of that holy ground. And verse 16 says, and he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And then when we look at the apostle Matthew and what he wrote about that same event, we read these words in Matthew 21, verses 12 and 13. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. Now he's not driving out the worshipers. He's driving out the merchants and the money changers, the crooked ones. That's who's being driven out. So he drove, he drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And then in verse 13, he said to them, it is written. This has already been declared by God. This has already been established by God. What he's about to say is the written word of God. And he goes on and says, it is written, my house, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. You have made it a den of thieves. That phrase in there, shall be called, means to place a name upon. And Jesus is saying, God placed a name on this house, the house of prayer. But you have come along now and you have placed another name on it. You have made it. Notice the scripture, the wording of the scripture. God said, my house shall be called or named house of prayer. But you have made it by your own wickedness, by your own crookedness. You have made the house into something totally different than God established the house to be. You have made it a den of thieves. Serious. 
Very serious. And so Jesus in that act restores and reestablishes the truth that God's house is first a house of prayer. First and foremost a house of prayer. And after, God, after Jesus got all of that corruption out of there, then there were two things that happened that should have been happening at that house of prayer that were not happening because of all the corruption that was there. Let's take a look at it. Matthew chapter 21, verse 14. After Jesus drove all of that mess out, the house then became, or also became, a house of power. Once he established the fact that my house shall be called a house of prayer, it then became a house of power. Verse 14 says, Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The house also became a house of praise after he drove the corruption out from off the grounds. It became a house of praise. In verses 15 and 16 of Matthew 21, it says, but then the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. The healing of the lame and the blind and the crippled. When they saw the works that Jesus performed, the works of power that Jesus performed, the children started to cry out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David. When the scribes and the chief priests, those who were responsible for the house, those who were responsible for ministry in the house, when they heard the children crying out that kind of praise to Jesus, the Bible says that they became indignant and angry. They weren't angry when all of the corruption was going on. They weren't angry when people were being charged exorbitant prices for animals to sacrifice to God. They weren't angry when the money changers were stealing and ripping people off. They weren't angry when the house was a den of thieves, but they became angry when the house became a house of power and a house of praise. What hypocrisy. And verse 16, they said to Jesus, do you hear what these are saying? Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Oh, I hear it. Yes. But have you never read? You men of God. You scribes, you Pharisees, you leaders of the people. You supposed to have knowledge of the book. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants? You have perfected praise. Jesus said, listen, what is happening here is the fulfillment of prophecy. God said that the children will praise me. If the adults don't praise me, the children will praise me. If the adults don't give me what I deserve and what's supposed to be happening here at this house, if the adults won't do it, then the children will cry out. And Jesus said, yes, I hear it. I hear it. It's the fulfillment of God's word that's going on. Now I have a question for all of us this morning. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Do we believe Jesus? When Jesus speaks, do we believe Jesus? Do we believe what Jesus says? Oh yes, I know we say we do. And we will right away say yes we do. But do we really believe what Jesus says? The Bible says about Jesus in John chapter 14 verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The truth, I am. John 1 verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of, full of grace and truth. That's Jesus John chapter 1 verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
So whenever Jesus opens his mouth, truth comes out. Whenever Jesus speaks, truth comes out. Whenever he teaches, truth comes out. When he declares God's word, truth comes out of his mouth. Do we believe Jesus when he speaks? If we believe that Jesus is the truth, then why, if he says God's house is a house of prayer, if that's God's truth, if we believe he has spoken truth, that God's house is a house of prayer, then why is the prayer meeting the smallest of all church meetings? God help me today. If we believe what Jesus said is God's truth, my house shall be called a house of prayer, then why is the prayer meeting the smallest of all the meetings of the church? Do we really believe Jesus? Last year we started a 6 a.m. daily prayer meeting on Zoom because of the pandemic. And every morning now, counting this morning, for the last 162 days consecutively, we have had 100 plus persons praying at 6 a.m., Every single of every single one of those 162 days. This has never happened on this level since I've been the senior pastor. And I believe with all my heart that this prayer meeting has made a significant difference. In this church, during, the, during 2020, as we battled with COVID-19, nobody can convince me otherwise. Because we had some real struggles in 2020. We had some difficulties to deal with. And some strenuous days during COVID-19 in this house of God to deal with. And I've said this before, but I'll say it again. You don't know what it was like when we didn't understand everything about COVID-19. And the government said only 10 people can come to church and do a live stream service. You don't understand what it was like to get up out of bed every Sunday morning and put on clothes and come down here to this house to do a service not knowing whether or not somewhere along the way back or forth or while inside or outside somewhere along the way we were going to become infected by the virus because we didn't know that wasn't easy and a lot of other struggles that I don't have the time to talk about happened some that you don't even as a membership you don't even know about because we don't tell you everything. Because we don't want you to become discouraged. And we don't want you to become downhearted. But it was a, it was a difficult time. It was a stressful time. And so I believe this 6 a.m. prayer meeting is what plugged up the gap. This 6 a.m. prayer meeting covered this church. Friday night prayer meeting as well on Zoom. But the 6 a.m. which was daily, which has been daily... It's what I believe covered this church. It's what I believe did some things for this church that otherwise we might have been in a deeper hole than we found ourselves, especially in the early months. But this prayer meeting covered this church, covered this people. I have absolutely no doubt about that whatsoever, none at all. And I can testify today that I know for a surety that this 6 a.m. prayer meeting over the last 162 days definitely made a difference in my life as the senior pastor. I can tell you that without a shadow of a doubt. It has made a difference in my life. In 40 years of ministry, 
38 of those 40 in pastoral ministry. I have never heard as many people praying for me as a pastor. I've never heard it before. You know, people will say, uh, yeah, pastor, praying for you. Yeah, pastor, I'm going to pray for you, but never do. Never do. Now, some do, yes. But a lot of people don't. They say they will, but they don't. But I can tell you it was so encouraging. It has been so encouraging and so strengthening to hear people over these last 162 mornings praying for me, a senior pastor, and praying for the other pastors of this church. I mean to hear their words in your ear. Not wondering or hoping that people are doing so, but to actually hear them calling your name. It's helped me to survive. It's encouraged me, strengthened me, inspired me. You know, there are some people, they'll find fault with everything you do as a pastor and everything you say as a pastor. Why pastor ain't doing this? Why pastor ain't doing that? Why this and why that? But they'll never pray for you. They'll never utter a prayer for you. Why isn't the church doing this? Why isn't the church doing that? Then why did this happen in the church? Why did that happen in the church? But they'll never pray for the church. Let me say it again because I think it's important. People will criticize everything but never pray. They'll criticize us but never pray for us. Find fault with the church but never pray for the church. But thank God. There's a hundred plus people every morning. Who pray for this church. And I'm not giving you any secondhand information. I am there every morning. And pray for this church. Pray for the needs of this church. Pray for the ministries of this church. Pray for the leaders of this church. That is what made the difference in this church in 2020. And as I said to the early service, I move in circles that a lot of you don't. So I know pastors and churches who are still struggling because of COVID-19 and the impact that COVID-19 had on their churches. Still struggling. Still hurting. Still trying to pull things together. Still trying to keep things together. But in spite of everything that we had to deal with and we had to face, Evangelistic Temple is still here. And Evangelistic Temple, Temple is still doing ministry. Evangelistic Temple is still in existence. And Evangelistic Temple is still honoring God. In spite of it all, I am telling you, it is because there was a people who committed themselves to get up in the morning and seek the face of God and cry out to him for this church and cry out to him for this people and cry Cry out to him for the needs of this church. And God honored those prayers and he's still doing so. And so I say to you this morning, I declare to you as the senior pastor of this church that the 6 a.m. 6 a.m. prayer meeting is now a part of this church's DNA. That 6 a.m. prayer meeting is here to stay. And if something goes wrong with Zoom, we'll find another platform. But the 6 a.m. prayer meeting is here to stay. It's now a part of who this church is and what this church does. It's an official part of our spiritual and ministry life. That 6 a.m. prayer meeting is what God established to help make this house a house of prayer. It's here to stay. And let me say to you, if you have a desire to be a part of this prayer meeting, but you have not been able to connect, 
You've not been able to come in because you don't have the information. For God's sake, call the office. We'll give you the link. We'll get it to you. If you don't know but you want to participate, that's all you have to do. Call the office. We'll make sure you get it. Because it's a part of who we are now. There's no turning back. It's a part of who we are. But I've got to say this one thing. Because it hurts my heart every morning. My heart's desire that I have expressed before is to see more of our men involved in our prayer meetings. Every morning I go through that list of names to see how many men are there. Some men may be there but only give the identification of their phone. So there is no name to put to the phone. And some of those may be men. But I can say without fear of contradiction. One morning we had 131 persons in that prayer meeting. And I don't think 30 of them were men. It hurts my heart. Right now, our prayer meetings, the, the early morning as well as the Friday nights and the monthly one on Wednesday nights, right now, these prayer meetings are carried on the shoulders of our women and only a handful of men. And I thank God today for every man. It brings tears to my eyes every morning when I look at the list and looking for the men in that list of 100 plus persons. It, it, it brings tears to my eyes when I look and see the names of the men who were there. But listen to me. I thank God for every man that's on the prayer meeting. I don't care if it's 10. I don't care if it's 20. I thank God for those men who made a commitment. You know what? I am going to pray for my church. I am going to pray for its ministries. I am going to pray for its life. I am going to pray for its leaders. I am committed to doing it. And so every morning, they are there. When I look at the list, they are there, 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 there. And I thank God. But my heart still aches because it could be so much better. And I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. I'm just speaking truth. And so my vision for 2021 is that evangelistic temple will become known in this country as a house of prayer. A house of prayer. Listen to me. We are known in this country for a lot of things. There are a lot of things we do in church. There are a lot of things we do in ministry that surpasses a whole lot of our churches. There are a whole lot of things that we are known for that other churches are not known for. There's a whole lot of things that over the years this church has pioneered in this country. And so we are known for a whole lot of things. But my vision for this year, I'll talk some more about this next Sunday as we talk about our theme for 2021. But listen, my vision for 2021 is that evangelistic temple becomes known as a house of prayer. Not just known for all of the other wonderful things that we do, all of the wonderful things that happen, but we will be known as a house of prayer. In other words, wherever you go in this country and the name evangelistic temple is mentioned, that whoever hears that name will respond to that by saying well boy I can tell you one thing about that church if you go to that church you're going to be prayed for if you go to that church you're going to hear about prayer if you go to that church you're going to see people praying because that place is known as a house of prayer that's the vision that I have for 2021 that this community this country will come to recognize evangelistic temple as God's house of prayer not just because it's a religious cliche or some fancy terminology, but the people of Evangelistic Temple would have committed themselves to become a praying people and making the house a house of prayer. That's what this pastor wants to see. 
let me hurry up. You got communion to go, but I only halfway through. Take a deep breath. Won't take that long. There is no ministry in the church that Satan fights against as much as the prayer ministry and prayer life of the church. Not a single other ministry does Satan fight as hard against as the prayer ministry and the prayer life. You know why? Because Satan knows the power of prayer. He knows it works. And he knows he can't stand against it. Because prayer is what engages. It's the method by which we engage the power of a living God to whom he is subject. And when that power is engaged and that power is released against him, he absolutely has to fail in everything that he does. And so he knows that when he launches an attack against a Christian or he launches an attack against the church and that Christian decides to pray or that church decides to pray, he knows what's going to happen as a result of that prayer. But if the church does not decide to pray, if the Christian does not decide to pray, then Satan will almost be guaranteed a victory. And so he knows exactly why he fights it so hard. Let me close with seven examples of prayer power in the early church. And we only say early church to distinguish what happened in the Bible from what has happened outside of the Bible. But it's one church. From it was born on the day of Pentecost, it's still one church. So it ain't like you had a period where you know, prayer worked and now there's a period where prayer doesn't work. It's one church. And if we engage prayer the same way they engage, we'll have the same kind of results. So let me leave these seven things with you. I'll try to get through them quickly. Number one, the church was birthed in prayer. We were born in prayer. We came out of a spiritual womb in prayer. We were birthed. God gave birth to us in prayer. The birth pangs, they were prayer. Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, the Bible says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication after Jesus ascended to heaven. And then in Acts chapter 2 verse 1 through 4, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In that atmosphere of prayer, in that atmosphere of being in one accord, the church came out of the womb. No man made the church. No man built the church. No man established the church. The church came out of a spiritual womb as the people of God prayed. And then the Bible says on that same day in Acts chapter 2 verse 41, that same day 3,000 souls were added to them. The church was born. Verse 47 says the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The church was born. But the church was born in prayer. And listen to me, there are some things that the church needs to give birth to. There are some things that God still wants to birth through the church. There are some things that God wants to do in this nation that the government can't do. The government doesn't have the insight. The government doesn't have the power. The government doesn't have the overall to do these things. But the church has the power, if the church decides to pray, to give birth. The things in this nation that we say we need so badly. Only the church can give birth to peace on our streets. You have the police all over the place. And people are still being shot down in the streets. 
give birth to peace. But we can. Number two, the church was empowered in prayer. Where do we get our power from? Or how do we get our power? We know we get our power from God, but how do we get our power? Does it just fall out of the sky? Do we organize and orchestrate our power? What's the medium? How are we empowered? Acts chapter 4 verse 31. It says, and when they had prayed, they were, they were commanded, stop preaching in this name. And they called the prayer meeting. And the Bible says, and when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. We want a shaking. Huh? We want a shaking from God. We want to see some things shake. We want to see the house shake. We want to feel the shaking of God. But the Bible says the shaking came after they prayed. You can't make this house shake. I can't make this house shake. I can't do one single thing to accomplish something like that. But if we decide to pray, who knows what will happen. Because it happened before. But it says when they prayed, the place was shaken. Not when they organized, not when they planned, not when they cast vision. As good as all of that is. But when they prayed, the place was shaken. And then the Bible says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the power. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. But the house shook and they were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit after they prayed. Number three. The first missionaries were sent out in prayer. Prayer. Listen. That's how the gospel got to the world. Through missionaries. Sent out in the early church. That's how the gospel got to the western part of the world. Because missionaries like Paul and his team came west instead of going east. And we got the gospel here in the western world. Eventually. But the Bible says in Acts chapter 11 verses 2 and 3. Verses, Acts 13, 2 and 3. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said... As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. But even after they were separated, they didn't just send them out. That's the mistake we make sometimes. And we see somebody with a gift. We acknowledge the gift. And we lay hands on them and send them out. But that's not how the first missionaries went out. God said, here are the missionaries, I have chosen them. But what was the responsibility of the church and the leadership of the church? Here's what the Bible says in verse 3. Then having fasted and prayed. Having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. The missionaries that took the gospel to that part of the world were sent out after the church prayed and not before. Even though God separated them, the responsibility of the church and its leadership was to pray over them and then lay hands on them and send them out. That happened through prayer. We got the gospel through prayer. Number four, signs and wonders were the result of prayer. You know, I've said this before, but it amazes me. How much we talk about signs, wonders, and miracles, but that's about it. 
That's as far as we want to go. Where are the miracles in the church? The furthest we want to go is to ask the question. But here's what the Bible says. Acts 2, 42 and 43. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Listen to me. They continued steadfastly in the teaching of the word, doctrine, and fellowship, gathering together like we are now. Whether it was a home setting or whether it was on the temple grounds at the time, they gathered together in fellowship. They gathered for the breaking of bread and they had prayer meetings. Oh, we don't mind gathering for the doctrine. We don't mind gathering for the fellowship. We don't mind gathering like this morning for the breaking of bread. But what about the prayers? What about the gathering for the prayers? You see, a lot of us want to talk about the signs and the wonders and the miracles. But a lot of us are not prepared to do what the early church did. Because verse 43 says, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. But included in that was the prayers. And so when you ask me, where are the signs? Where are the wonders? Where are the miracles? I am going to ask you, where are the prayers? See, it's easy to put the fault on the people who are in ministry. Why isn't this happening? What happened? Pastor ain't praying, eh? Pastor, I mean, what, 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 what's going on? What's going on? Huh? But when it comes to taking personal responsibility to pray, like the early church prayed, and then through the hands of the apostles, there were the signs and the wonders. Resulting from prayer. Number five. Prison gates were opened because of prayer. Prison gates. Acts chapter 12 verse 5. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Constant prayer by the church. While he was in prison. Verse 7 says, now, now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hand. Verse 10. When they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. All of this is happening, but you can't see what's going on behind the scenes. And verse 12 says, so when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, that's Peter, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. So the chains didn't just fall off, the gates didn't just open, the guards didn't just fall asleep. While all of that was happening, prayer was going on in Mary's house. The church was praying in Mary's house. We want the chains to fall off, fall off. We want the gates to open. We want the captives to go free. We want them to be delivered. We want them to be set free by the power of God. But where are the prayers? Number six. Or was that number six? Number six. The dead were raised as a result of prayer. Now, I know you're going to say, Pastor, you're going to an extreme now. No, I'm just reading the Bible. That's all I'm doing, just reading the Bible. This happened in the church. Not in the church building, 
but by believers, by Peter in this case. Let's read it. Acts 9, 36 and 37. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, but she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. Became sick and died. Peter was nearby in a nearby town, so they sent for Peter. And the Bible says when Peter came, there were all of these weeping people gathered around the house, gathered inside the house just weeping and wailing and hollering. But they couldn't do a thing. But weep, wail, and holler. And the Bible says in verse 40, but Peter put them all out. When you face with something like this, you don't need any distractions. You don't need any unbelievers. You don't need any playing people. You don't need anybody who's just there for the show, who just want to see the spectacle. He put them all out. Now watch this. He put them all out and knelt down and prayed. Before he did anything, before he said anything, he knelt down and prayed. Some of us would have been quick to jump up and start rebuking death. And I call your spirit from wherever it is, I call it back into your body. That's what some people would have done. But the Bible says, we are talking Bible. The Bible says, Peter did none of that. Peter knelt down and prayed. Now it says, after he finished praying, he turned to the body. But not before he prayed. After he prayed, he turned to the body and then he spoke. What a lesson for us to learn. This prayer is important. After he prayed, he turned to the body and he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up. The dead were raised out of prayer. And lastly, the sick were healed in the early church as a result of prayer. James chapter 5 verses 14 through 16. Is anyone sick? Anyone among you sick? Here's what he says. This is Bible folks. Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him. Whether he's at home. Whether he's in the hospital. Wherever he is. If he's in a nursing home. Wherever he is. Call for the elders of the church. And let the elders pray. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And verse 15 says. And the prayer of faith. Will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We want to see healing, but we don't want to pray. If we got news today that you were sick unto death and I said to this church we are having a prayer meeting tomorrow night at 7 o'clock to pray for brother or sister so and so's healing. Will you be here? Would you want to see that person healed? Would you want to see that cancer dry up? Would you want to see them raised up from a bed of affliction? I'm sure all of us would like to see that. But will we come to the prayer meeting? 
Because James says, the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. Jesus, help me. I got to stop. And so this is why Jesus told us in Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. Some other translations of that says men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Men should always pray and not give up. Men should always pray and not be discouraged. Men should keep praying and never stop or lose hope. Men should pray consistently and never quit. My house shall be called the house of prayer. The psalmist says in Psalm 55 verse 17. If this is the first time you're hearing it, write it down. Go back in your Bible and look at Psalm 55. Verse 17 says, Evening and morning and at noon I will pray. That's the same principle incorporated in what the Apostle Paul told us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 17 that we should pray without ceasing. Morning Evening, morning, and at noon, I will pray. Pray without ceasing. My house shall be called a house of prayer. This is burning in my spirit like fire. And I am telling you, 2021, I will do everything that God enables me to do as a pastor. To see this house transformed into a house of prayer. Everything that I am able to do. And so like I said to the early service, if you want to be a part of a church where you don't hear anything about prayer, or you're not challenged to pray, then you need to find another church now because you're going to hear that throughout 2021. Or, if you want to be a part of a church where the pastor you don't want to hear the pastor talking about prayer. You don't want to hear the pastor challenging the church to pray. You don't want to hear the pastor encouraging you to become a person of prayer. If you don't want to hear that, fire me now. It's only the third day of 2021. We're still early in the year. Get me out now because you're going to be hearing that for the rest of the year. It won't be the only sermon you hear, but throughout what this church is about, you're going to hear it. You're going to hear it. My house shall be called a house of prayer. And remember this. Vaughn Lester Cash did not say that. And Vaughn Lester Cash did not write that. The God who owns this house said that. And the God who built this house said that. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you.